Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, are you ready to elevate your personal brand or company? Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for video content and audience building. Imagine growing your brand organically on social media without the hassle of editing videos for hours. With Viral Growth, it's a breeze. They handle the brainstorming, scripting, and editing while you simply just hit record. And don't worry about your niche. They cater to everyone, from business and marketing to health and wellness. Are you ready to make waves in the social media realm? Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan. A lot of it stems not from good fortune or good timing, but just Jeff Bezos and being a visionary and identifying new trends at the right time and putting all his chips on the table and getting more investment than any other e-commerce company in the 90s and going public early. And then the ingenuity to come up with AWS and the Kindle, which I told those stories in the Everything Store, but then Alexa and the Ghost Store, the physical retail business, the stories that I'm telling at Amazon Unbound. You can't replace the magic of the entrepreneur operator who can kind of do it both. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofsetter, president of Profitero. And this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands. Sarah, there's so many amazing parts to Amazon Unbound, but the thing that really stuck out to me from the book is that the ad business has been underwriting all of the innovation and growth and margins within Jeff Bezos's overall business. Well, that in AWS, but yeah. The two together, yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It is. And it's kind of unfair relative to the way other companies that make money on advertising are perceived now. Absolutely. I mean, you think about all the digital publishers, BuzzFeed, Group 9, Vice, Refinery29. If you're an investor right now, you're kind of staying away from those assets. You don't see them as valuable. You're not giving them high multiples. Yet in the universe of Amazon, it is literally its most valuable asset paired with AWS, of course. But either way, you're hitting on something so interesting. You, know, you look at Prime as an example. They're investing in all this video content so that you stay with Prime. 
But does somebody say that Amazon is a high-powered studio? I mean, maybe if you're watching Maisel, but like other than that, you say Amazon's an e-commerce company. 100%. So if Amazon was, let's just call it a media company that was subsidized by advertising, then it would just be like any other media company. But it's not. Right. You would see the investors have much lower multiples. And that's the genius that all of a sudden was exposed to me in this book. Because if you look at the headlines, People talk about AWS because you'll put a high multiple in AWS, but you're not talking about the ad business. Interestingly, tech is sexier than advertising. Who knew? Apparently Wall Street. (laughs) I think one of the things that was uh, interesting, I'm going to read a paragraph and then maybe we can bring Brad Stone, the author of this book, Amazon Unbound, onto the podcast is to Rachel's point, this whole idea that search advertising, so self-service advertising without actual reps was discovered to be one of the biggest underlying levers of both growth and profit. So I'm going to read from what Brad wrote. Search ads had all of the business characteristics that Bezos loved. Customers weren't transported off Amazon when they clicked, but sent to individual product pages where they made purchases and fed the flywheel. Few expense accounts wielding madmen, sheesh men, were needed to administer it. The system was largely self-service, and once the technology was in place, search ads would produce tremendous leverage and a huge windfall that Bezos can use to finance new inventions. Freaking genius. It's all genius. I mean, I think that the biggest takeaway is ad businesses are extremely valuable when paired with other great assets. That's always been the case. Sometimes we lose the forest in the trees. Mm -hmm. Let's uh, talk about (laughs) that a little bit more with our friend Brad Stone. Today, we are happy to have someone I've known for about 20 years, Brad Stone, author of The Everything Store, and new book just out called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. So Brad, thank you so much for joining us today on your whirlwind virtual book tour. It's great to have you. Thank you, Sarah. Good to see you. And hello, Rachel. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Are excited. So I've listened to a couple of the other podcasts that you've done over the course of the past week. There have been conversations about mysteriously disappearing senior executives in Mexico accused of killing a spouse. There's infidelity. There's lots of intrigue. And we're not talking about any of that today because our listeners are a combination of C-suite executives selling products on Amazon and or their marketing or e-commerce or sales teams. So it's going to be hardcore business. That's awesome. But at least now they know there is some juice in the book in addition to the serious business lessons. Ah, you're a marketer. I love it. Yes, I've read the book cover to cover. I highly recommend it. I have picked out a few different areas that I think will be of interest to marketers so they can write it off as a business expense. But you stay there for the gossip because good stuff. If I was a marketer, I would just want a copy of the book you have. I love all the little tabs. Oh, I'll give you my tabbed version. We have to buy another one and pay it forward to somebody else. My tabbed version is is highly curated. <laughs> so let's jump into it. Let's go into Amazon's foray into technology-led search advertising, particularly sponsored products. This certainly was interesting to me as I, I got a lot of my start in advertising in the search business and the way that Amazon moved from being more of a old school Madison Avenue led approach to advertising to tech led. Tell us a little bit more about how they moved from this typical media sales organization 
to practically self-service and the unintended consequences. That was actually about a 10-year-plus journey at Amazon. Sarah, they started sort of conventionally with banner ads, and Jeff Bezos was very particular. He didn't want nutritional supplements or ads with guns. He defined other product categories he just didn't want to see on the Amazon homepage. And then they hired some salespeople, but they grew it very slowly. It's not like they don't want employees, but they want to create self-service systems and self-perpetuating mechanisms. They don't want to do kind of hand-to-hand sales. And so advertising really drifted at Amazon for a long time. And as you say, search advertising was the epiphany. But the risk was always that it might undermine the customer experience. And they obviously view that as sacrosanct at Amazon. And so the search ads start at the bottom of the, of the search results page, probably in like 2014. Then they migrate to the side. Then they start testing the top. And this was, to me, a turning point in the book and in Bezos's journey and in Amazon's journey. Because in the tests, they really can deduce that automated search advertising reduces the quality of the customer experience. It lowers the percentage of customers finding what they're searching for and buying. And yet they authorize it anyway, because Bezos basically says the revenues, the upside would be so large as to totally outweigh any possible negative customer impact, even if it exists. And the result is a business that's now, I think they reported 7 billion run rate in the last quarter. That's the other category where they hide advertising. And it's funding all sorts of things like Prime Video and the next version of Alexa and who knows what else we don't know about. But you mentioned unintended consequences. I mean, I feel like you look at Amazon search results now, and instead of a taxonomy of useful things, it's your pay-to-play typical search results page sprinkled with Amazon's own private label products in there. I call it the gold mine in the backyard in the in the book. It's the chapter title because it really has been alongside AWS, this high margin, high cash flow business. Speaking of uh, margins, it seems like one of the aha moments was when they realized that the ad business could make their retail business more profitable. Was it Jeff Bezos who stumbled upon that insight or was it some unknown name executive? Like when did that happen in the company's history? Right. And this is actually a sort of scene that I paint in the book. And it seems like it's in the weeds, but it really demonstrates a lot about how Amazon operates and how Bezos thinks. So this is a 2017 OP1, and he's looking at their conventional six-page documents running through the, the numbers and projections for the retail business. And he identifies that advertising has basically been propping up the retail business, that its unit economics have been actually declining over the past few years, but it's been concealed by the growth of advertising. And in a number of kind of excruciatingly pointed questions in this tense atmosphere, he basically blows up the retail division's projections and asks them to basically separate out the ad revenue and to get back to underlying economic health. And it leads to all sorts of things at Amazon that we only saw from the outside, basically a hiring freeze, some very subtle and obfuscated layoffs, stopping services, which Amazon never does, like Amazon restaurants and Amazon tickets, and a pairing back, and, and probably some pretty severe rounds of renegotiations with brands and, and sellers as Amazon struggled to get more profitable. And again, to go back to how Bezos thinks, Amazon gets accused of diverting revenues from one business to fund another. And yet he has this belief that when a business matures and gets to seven to 10 years old, it really should stand on its own. And 
basically him pulling out the ad business from retail was an illustration of that. And then it freed up. First of all, it made Amazon's numbers look a lot better. And the stock price started soaring and it got to a trillion dollars in market cap. And two, you know, we're talking at a time where, and we don't know how this will result, but Amazon might buy MGM. It's betting really hugely on prime video and free content for its customers. It's building fulfillment centers all around the, the world. And part of that is because they have access to this gold mine in advertising that is no longer, you know, being subsumed into retail and to fund these, you know, somewhat marginal new projects. One of the things that I had heard from a friend of mine who has nothing to do with this business, but is in commercial real estate, is saying that it's actually exceptionally hard to find warehousing location because Amazon's buying it all up. And this is not just a, that to your point, this isn't just a US thing. This is clearly part of these like mm-hmm. businesses that are in support of other businesses. And as those FCs both get bigger and bigger, but also as they try to take over as much of that supply chain as possible, it's going to be very interesting to see how that affects other industries, such as real estate, almost similarly to the way they completely upended transportation. And by the way, Sarah, what that represents is the fulfillment center is getting ever closer to customers and major cities, population centers. And we think Amazon is dominant today, but when they can effortlessly perform one-day delivery and not even be sort of subsidizing it for their best customers, but it's because all those fulfillment centers are less than a day away, they start to eat into the convenience, which was kind of the last mode of physical retail. And that is interesting and very scary. Let's jump into that for a second, because there's always been this argument, like Amazon has the benefit of not having as much physical infrastructure and retail stores and all that other kind of overhead. But the Walmarts and the Targets have that actual last mile connection. I think the saying is 90% of Americans live within 10 minutes of a Walmart or something. But my question is actually a little bit on fair competition on private label because Walmart, Target, grocers of all kinds have been in the private label business a really long time. Yet Amazon's under more scrutiny than them for using data to make private label competition. Like why, why is Amazon under that spotlight so much more than anyone else that's been in this private label business, which has been going on for decades? It's a great question. And I think the most obvious answer is there's not a lot of uh, science behind it. Amazon is simply a target, right? We saw that during the pandemic. You know, it's the brightest light in the sky right now. And it is simply a gravitational center for a lot of criticism, fair and unfair. A lot of it is fair. On the private label issue, in the book, I talked to the private label managers back in the early days of the consumable private label launches, who, by their own admission, showing me the spreadsheets, they dipped into that third-party data to figure out what to sell. They were given huge goals by the leadership team, the S team, and with the fear of failure and firing hanging over their heads, they looked at what the best supplement skew was by the most successful third-party seller, and they launched those skews. But you raise a good point, and it's Amazon's defense. Well, Amazon's defense is we certainly don't do that, and um, we have internal policies, but we're going to investigate it. And they really haven't said you know, what the result of that was. But the point that is fair is all retailers, aren't they aware of what's selling on their shelves, 
Obviously, there are third-party data sources. Everyone can figure out what the best supplement is, where the trends are going. Mm -hmm. I think why it smells funny to a lot of people is because Amazon is an infinite shelf and because they are the platform for these smaller sellers who are finding opportunity solely because they're trusting Amazon to reach customers. They're paying fees to Amazon. I know that's slightly similar to a wholesale brand, but it doesn't pass the smell test. It's easily understandable by regulators and lawmakers. I don't know if if the fact that, you know, Amazon's a platform, that its shelves are infinite meets the legal definition for why this is improper. But I think to, you know, a lot of people, it feels like Amazon is being disingenuous, right? When it offers a platform for third-party sellers and then uses their data to orchestrate their own private label campaign. I'm just speculating here. Maybe one of the differences to your point, it's like building on that infinite shelf is in a retail store, there is an infinite space for an end cap. Whereas let's just say, you know, at Walmart, they're not going to take that precious real estate and use it for their private label brands when they can much better sell it as an incentive to a brand that will put that product on the end cap. Whereas let's say an Amazon's choice or an Amazon private label can force rank in theory something to the top of the search algorithm. So with search being the new end cap, it may be a good, I don't know, what do you guys think? I mean, this isn't just attributed though to Amazon. Target's quarterly earnings just came out. Their 25% lift in revenue is being attributed to their private label business. So I I think it's going to ultimately come to the question, like when do you become too big? I think we all look at Amazon right now because of its sheer size. Target seems to be taking a page from the Amazon book on the diversification of private label brands. So if you look at the search results for certain products where they've got like seven or eight of their private label brands in like the coffee space, there's no way other coffee brands are breaking through. And I think Amazon did the same thing with Happy Belly and Solomo and all that other stuff. And it makes it a lot harder for other either very big brands like a Nestle or, you know, mom and pop brands who use it as their sole point of revenue. Mm hmm. One aspect of the story that I'm telling in the book is how inept Amazon's private label strategy was, particularly in the early years. And some of the brands that you're mentioning, Sarah, you know, were were like did not get traction at all. And it was only when they bought Whole Foods and inherited the 365 brand that they really started to see some some lift there. But, you know, one other just aspect that's in my book is this idea of search seeding, which is the practice of taking a new product and sort of pinning it to the search ranking of an established product. So it's not languishing on page 52 of the search results. Hmm. And early on in the private label rollout, Amazon was taking the new private label brands and search seeding them to the top to give them some beginning momentum. What? That's, that's, that's unheard of. I can't believe they would do something like that. She says sarcastically. Right, right. Because you're saying a physical retailer is obviously going to take their house brand and put it on the top shelf at at eye level. And you're right. You're right. It's only because, you know, Amazon is so visible, you know, and the activity, they sort of hide it there in plain sight and they never admit it. And they say they have policies against it that I think it strikes a lot of people the wrong way. And this is what like the EU has taken a really close look at. On the topic of just getting too big, you know, one of the best quotes, or you've so many quotes in your book, but At the end of the book, you quote Bezos saying, Amazon is not too big to fail. In fact, I predict one day Amazon will fail. Amazon will go bankrupt. If you look at large companies, their lifespan tends to be 30 years plus, not 100 years plus. I mean, pretty bold statement by Jeff, and I'm surprised that isn't more readily known. 
What's your point of view on the new CEO, Andy Jassy's ability to avoid that, especially since his expertise is not as much in retail and the ad business? Well, I mean, Bezos is motivating his employees and he's used the specter of of failure and the the goal of maintaining this entrepreneurial environment as a, you know, to light a fire under his employees. But Amazon is nowhere near, I mean, it's, it's now 25 years old, so it's not failing in five years. It is a boulder rolling downhill gathering speed with the build out of the fulfillment centers and the data centers, vans on the road and the trucks on the highway. The future of Amazon is more Amazon in whatever direction that you look. And Jassy is inheriting that. And, and yes, he has spent the last 15 years at AWS, but he started his career as a Bezos disciple in the retail business, ran marketing, was Jeff's TA or technical assistant, so got a real 360-degree view of how the company operates and has been immersed in the culture forever. You know, he and, and the other advantage he has is that Bezos isn't going anywhere, is executive chairman and sponsoring new products and initiatives. And I'm sure we'll still be there at the at the big meeting speaking last. So Jassy is going into it with a lot of advantages. And if you're asking where on the spectrum of Tim Cook to Steve Ballmer, you know, he's going to land, I suspect a lot of things are lined up for him to be more of a Tim Cook-like figure and to be able to continue to administer this like remarkable machinery that has been set up over the past 20 years and that shows no sign of fading. Follow up to that. Giving your deep analysis of Amazon, not just in Amazon Unbound, but your experience working at Bloomberg and the New York Times and writing the Everything Store, which I think is universally accepted as like the default book on all things Amazon and Bezos. What do you think a company needs not just to avoid failure, but actually thrive without creating a, as you quote, brilliant, but rather cruel environment? Well, I mean, the first and most obvious thing, and it's sort of, I think, maybe just apparent, but a lot of it stems not from good fortune or good timing, but just Jeff Bezos and being a visionary and identifying new trends at the right time and putting all his chips on the table and getting more investment than any other e-commerce company in the 90s and going public early. And then the ingenuity to come up with AWS and the Kindle, which I told those stories in the Everything Store, but then Alexa and the Ghost Store the physical retail business, the stories that I'm telling in Amazon Unbound. You can't replace the magic of the entrepreneur operator who can kind of do it both, right? Who has the great ideas, but then can sponsor the new projects in the company when typically a kind of bureaucratic sluggishness with a growing company and slow things down and muck them up. Amazon has been able to create this decentralized, high-performance culture largely because of Bezos. Now, you mentioned the the other side of it, which is he's not high on the empathy level of the spectrum. And the fulfillment centers get a lot of deserved criticism for being difficult transactional workplaces. He has, you know, really resisted unionization efforts at Amazon because I think he understands that that kind of collective bargaining and organizing would limit the company's flexibility, its ability to churn through employees and give them mandatory overtime and work them through the holidays and whatnot. So look, I mean, there's a lot of things to emulate in the Amazon story, and then there are a lot of things to understand better. And even though it's worked, at least from a market wealth creation perspective, to think about whether you want to create those kinds of workplaces and duplicate that part of the Amazon example. I'm waiting for the day that there's this great company that treats employees so well and makes a ton of money. 
It, it always feels like there's a trade-off. Well, on this note, we have our famous question, and I'm very excited to hear your answer. What's the bravest thing that you've ever done? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, I knew there was going to be one, uh, one curveball. This is a question that you ask every guest? No, just you. Okay, no. Well, it's the Brave Commerce podcast, so that makes a lot of sense. Well, I am, so I'm a twin, and I am the father of twins. And okay, that was obviously not a choice, but, you know, being the father to two now teenage girls and then a teenage stepdaughter, you know, I'm sur- so I'm surrounded by uh, teenage girls at home. I'm not going to say it's it's necessarily brave, but it does take a certain amount of fortitude in the land of eye-rolling TikTok videos here to, you know, be a steady presence in their lives and to be a good father, particularly during the pandemic. Obviously, I think parents everywhere have been exhibiting uncommon acts of bravery during this last year. So that's my improvised answer, Rachel. Parenting teen girls during the pandemic is an act of unsolicited bravery. At least it's positive bravery because not parenting your girls during the pandemic would also be an act of bravery. It would just be really stupid bravery. Right. That's why it's not a great answer because, right, what what was the alternative? With teenage girls? We've all seen those parents. (laughs) Right. I might have been one of those parents. All right. Well, okay. So my answer is a salute to parents during the pandemic. (laughs) Amen. That is great. Well, I I would say to those of you listening who have not yet bought the book, we highly recommend Amazon Unbound. If you want to be super meta, you can buy it on Amazon. If you hate Amazon, you can buy it everywhere else. Books are sold. They are sold in other locations for those of you who are wondering. As as somebody who has read it cover to cover and dog-eared my fair share, and no, I didn't read it on a Kindle, it is highly recommended. And if you haven't read The Everything Store, or actually The Upstart, which is another fantastic book from a few years ago that Brad wrote, highly recommend that as well. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and Google Podcasts. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hey there, podcast fam. Are you ready to break free from the social media rut? Hold on to your hatch because we've got just the thing for you. Meet Viral Growth, your one-stop shop for leveling up your online presence. Whether you're a personal brand or a company, they've got the tools and know-how to take you to the next level. With Viral Growth, forget about those endless hours of video editing. They handle everything from brainstorming to polishing your content so you can just focus on being awesome. And guess what? We're hooking you up with a sweet deal. Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of True, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice. Meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming centre stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.